my heart has been blessed already as I've met people before the service and then through the singing this morning. So I don't know uh, what word has stood out to you, but the word that has stood out to me this morning is the word hope. We live in such a broken world, and we live in bodies that are broken, but we have hope. And we can come from so many different countries. I met um, a wonderful family this morning from Nigeria. We, can, we come from so many different countries, but we have the same God and we have the same Savior. That's hope. And we're all going to be in heaven together. Ha, huh, I can't wait. Um, so anyway, good morning to those of you who are here. And for those of you who are watching online or may watch online later, um, I'm glad we can all be together. Last week, Pastor Graham started off our study of Colossians by walking us through chapter 1, and today we'll continue with chapter 2. Colossians is full of foundational, practical, life-giving truths, so a short Sunday morning hardly does justice to any one chapter, but we'll do our best. As Pastor Graham pointed out last week, the focus of the letter to the Colossians is on the superiority perfection, and sufficiency of Christ in a world that continually seeks to answer life's questions through finite human thinking and doing. Our world today is pretty similar to the world of the Colossian believers. Our battles are pretty much the same. They look a little different because our location is different and our uh, decade is different but the root is the same. It started in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 tells us what happened. This is what we read. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan worked both subtly and blatantly. He did three things. At least the three things that stick out to me are these. He threw doubt on God's word. Did God really say? He blatantly lied, and he said, you're not going to die. And then he offered something better. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He does the same thing in every generation. He takes a little truth and mixes it with a little or a whole lot of lie. And it's what Pastor Graham referred to last week as syncretism. In every generation, Satan works desperately hard to deceive the most treasured piece of God's creation, us, humanity, with whom he can and with whom he longs to enjoy relationship and friendship. I'm going to read some verses from 2 Peter 3. And the words, uh, and the apostle Peter tells us, the way he words it, is uh, that there's a battle going on between good and evil. He words it like this, but I'm going to give you the context first. In the context of these particular verses that we'll read, Peter has been reminding believers 
about a celebration and a world that awaits all who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. A world that will be filled with only what is right and good and just. No evil, no cruelty, no injustice. But until then, we live in the midst of a battle between good and evil. And Peter words it like this. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unscrupulous people and lose your own firm commitment, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The antidote to being deceived is getting to know Jesus Christ more intimately, growing in his knowledge, wisdom, and grace, finding him and his truth in the words that he's left us. In Revelations 2, Jesus has a message for the church in Ephesus, And it's interesting that all these verses on being deceived are all written to believers. So we can be deceived. Here's what Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus. Here was his message, Revelations 2. I know your deeds and your labor and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil people and you have put those who call themselves apostles to the test and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have persevered. And you have perseverance and have endured on account of my name and have not become weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This may have referred to their love for one another or for their love for Christ or both. Whichever the case, we know that the source of love is God. These believers who were working hard, they were not putting up with false teaching, they were persevering, They had walked away from the spring of living water. The good things they were doing were not coming from the living water, which had at the first nourished their souls. And then there was Mary. And I'm getting somewhere with all of this. We still haven't hit the book of Colossians, but I'm getting somewhere. Then there was Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet, soaking up his teaching. A woman learning from a rabbi a woman disciple sitting at her rabbi's feet under his teaching. That was a position at that time that was reserved only for men. And yet Jesus blesses her. Here's what he says in Luke 10 in reference to Mary's choice and her sister Martha's distress. Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the serving by myself? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. Only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus' point was not that we shouldn't work hard or prepare well. I think his point was, at least in part, that Mary had her source correct. She was drinking from living water. And so we learn from just these couple of passages that we've gone over that there is a battle. We live in the midst of a battle between good and evil, light and dark. And it's a real battle. Spiritual forces have been at work from the beginning of time. And we also learn that we easily, even in our good deeds, get distracted. Our natural tendency is to move 
away from our creator and not towards. And that is why the book of Colossians is so important. The Apostle Paul had a burden that believers, whom he hadn't even met, that they not get distracted away from Christ. Remember, Colossians is written to Christians. And in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul discusses four false teachings or four heresies that can distract all of us away from Christ. Anything that turns our focus to self or unduly elevates another human being or encourages an obsession with spirit beings, angels, good or bad, is a warning that we are turning away from Christ and toward another agenda. And those are all things that the Apostle Paul addresses in Colossians. So with that, we're going to delve into Colossians chapter 2, and we'll take it section by section. First five verses read like this. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have in your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments, for even though I am absent in body, I am nevertheless with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your orderly manner and the stability of your faith in Christ. We are reminded here of Colossians 1.27, where Paul spoke of a mystery that had been hidden for a good long while and is now revealed to all peoples, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That speaks of a relationship of hope, Christ in us, a person to intimately get to know. It is in Christ where we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not in finite human thinking or persuasive arguments. It is in Christ where we find full assurance, and that is a position of rest. Moving on to verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We were, the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we were rooted in him. That's our position. Ephesians 3.17 says this, we are rooted and grounded in love. The Apostle Paul is saying here that just as we received Christ Jesus by faith and were rooted in him, present reality, past event, that in the same way we are now in relationship to walk with him daily by faith. As we enjoy our secure position in him by faith, Rooted in his love and truth, he causes us to grow. The metaphor here is of a tree whose rings grow outward 
and upward year by year. From what I understand, there's usually about one month of new growth resulting in a new ring and then about 11 months of solidification. In Galatians 3.23, the Apostle Paul words it like this. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, he asks believers this. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you trying to grow on your own? Christ in us, the hope of glory, our hope for all that is right and perfect, is the one who causes us to grow as we walk in dependence on him. That position and act of reality is freeing. So now, with our position clear, Paul goes on to address the four false teachings or heresies that can deceive us. Putting our focus, all of those heresies, put our focus on finite human thinking and doing rather than on our infinite life-giving God. So here's the first heresy. See if you can uh, pick it up in verses 8 through 15. We read, See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over every ruler and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him, through Christ. There is a lot going on there, and we'll just pick, up a, pick out a few things. But the picture here is one of being kidnapped, made a slave, functioning under a foreign authority, a prisoner who has been blinded, brainwashed, deceived, tricked. A human way of figuring things out it's what, is what's in view here human philosophical reasoning that seeks to explain and fill in life's answers without God. And it leaves us empty. Human reasoning, no matter how academic or persuasive it may sound, can never satisfy our thirsty souls. In Deuteronomy 32, when Moses was giving Israel God's word, he said to them in verse 47, These are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Human reasoning 
is a stagnant water source. Christ is the living water. And in Christ, we are complete. It's a fact. It happened the moment we put our faith in Christ. We have what we need. We have whom we need for spiritual battle, for life, for forgiveness. Jesus paid our death penalty on the cross. Because of our sins, the death penalty is justified. God very plainly warned us, if you turn from me, you will die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But Christ chose to die. His death, his blood, paid that, that, that death penalty. In the Old Testament, God made away the death of an animal in place of the death of the wrongdoer. And I like what Leviticus 17.11 says because it makes it so clear that life is in the blood, whether of us humans, without our blood pumping through our veins, we are dead. And so uh, God explains it like this, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar that was in the, New Te- or the Old Testament to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. 2,000 years ago, on the cross, Christ's blood paid the final sacrifice. It was his blood, his life, that took the place of mine and yours. The death penalty rightfully incurred by each one of us was paid in full by the person of Jesus Christ on a Roman wooden cross. So in these verses, we're introduced to Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. We're also introduced to another aspect of what he accomplished, and that is our spiritual circumcision. Not only our sins, which are many, were dealt with on the cross, but the root of our sins, our sinful nature, was also dealt with. I don't know about you, but my sinful nature shouts at me all the time, trying to get my attention and my allegiance. And here the Apostle Paul explains that similar to physical circumcision, Christ has removed our sin nature from us. We still deal with it, but he has disconnected it from who we are now in Christ. He's laid it aside. But because we're still in our earthly bodies and living in a broken world, we still contend with it. This is what spiritual circumcision means, though. It means that our sinful nature has lost its rights to control us. We can let it, but it doesn't have that right anymore. Our sinful nature no longer has direct access to our hearts and lives because it was surgically removed or severed. Its direct line of access was cut off at the cross. God has dealt with our sinful nature, taking away its right to freely govern our mortal bodies. We understand this by faith and walk in this truth by faith. 
So not only did God perform this spiritual circumcision, he also so graciously included us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving us the amazing gift of a new way of life. Before Christ, we had no choice. We just automatically obeyed our sinful nature. Now we have a choice. In Christ, we have been freed from the tyranny of the sinful nature. In Christ, we are freed from guilt, the guilt of our many sins. In Christ, we are given a new way, a freeing way to do life. We move on to the second deception that Paul addresses in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And the Apostle Paul was writing to Jewish people, so they had all these rituals that had been uh, instituted all the way back in the Old Testament. But the Apostle Paul says these things are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. I think we all long for perfection. I think it's built into us. We long for it inside of us. We long for it outside of us. And we really easily get trapped into thinking that we can live just right. Or we might come under somebody else's burden for and expectations for us to live right. That's the law. And it was given to the Israelites so long ago, but it could never change their hearts. And the law can never change our hearts. If we want it to change our hearts, that's called legalism, and that's what Paul addresses here. Legalism may change outward behavior for a while, it might, but the change never lasts. It didn't last for the Israelites. If you read the Old Testament, it did not last for the Israelites. And it doesn't last for us. Outward behavior may change for a time, but the heart remains sin-sick. The law never changes the heart. The law cannot perfect us, but it does have a purpose. It points us to perfection. Galatians 3.24 says this, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. By faith we accept Christ's perfection in exchange for our futile strivings toward perfection. Christ in us, there's that verse again, Christ in us and for us, our only hope. So the third deception, we've come through human philosophy and reasoning, legalism. Here's the third deception that Paul warns us about, uh, verses 18 and 19. Take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding firmly to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. These verses speak of the deception of mysticism, following a human leader, feigning humility 
but in reality, walking in arrogance. Again, to fall captive is to have been distracted away from the Lord Jesus Christ, the only source, our only source, of real growth and sustenance. And then finally, the fourth deception Paul warns us of, verses 20 and 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man? These are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. So similar to legalism, this is what we call asceticism, it demands a lot from us, and it looks good on the outside, but it can never change the heart. Like legalism, worldly philosophy, mysticism, asceticism puts the focus on self. But self can never measure up. Self can never do enough. It's a discouraging place to be. Self can never fix the real issue. Only Christ, in his authority and supremacy and sufficiency, can do all of that. I'm going to end with the hopeful and life-giving words of our Savior, found in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. Here's what the Lord says to us. Cursed is the one who trusts in mankind, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit.